thinking about living a disciplined life this morning. Um, uh, if you put your hands up, anybody know the Park Run Initiative? Yeah, oh, that's really good. So, um, so Liz and I have had a go at Park Run over the, la- over the summer. We've done a few. Uh, they make a stress of saying it's not a race, uh, but that's wrong. It is a race <laughs> um, because they send you an email telling you how fast you've been and you can check against it against everybody else's uh, times. And I'd like you to know that um, I am first yeah. for men of my age <laughs> uh, who live in Chudley. <laughs> whose name begins with G. <laughs> so so you, can, you can analyse it really, really carefully. Uh, and Park Runs, well, basically, it has a lot in common with the church, I think. At a predetermined time, a group of people uh, from all walks of life turn up in the same place with one purpose. There are helpful stewards who direct you, or encouragements to keep on going, and everyone gets really hot and sweaty. <laughs> so not that bit of the church, hopefully not. Um, I could learn about running from a book. If I wanted to get better at running, I could. I'd be very happy to sit in my study and read a book. But it's only the experience of running that I am going to improve in my running. Um, I've noticed, for example, that if you go to a different park run every week for the first time, you always get a personal best. (laughs) So he says, keep finding a new park run. You will always get a personal best. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 29, let me teach you. Let me teach you. He says in Matthew 4, verse 19, come and follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Let me teach you. Let me show you. When we talk about disciplines, we're not talking about a program or a strict uh, regimen. We're not talking about a straitjacket that's going to stop us doing stuff. We're not talking about earning salvation. We're not talking about something that's only for the spiritual elite. And we're certainly not talking about something that's separate from our everyday life. What we're talking about is a commitment to a cause. We're talking about training. We're talking about uh, fulfillment and freedom to live life in the company of Jesus. So if this morning you'd like to be living life in the company of Jesus, let's open our minds to what he might have to say to us this morning. It's quite a scary verse in Luke 10, verse 9. Jesus sends out his disciples to cure the sick and proclaim the good news. And there's not a huge amount of training, as far as I can see, that goes into that. He just says to these 72 people, off you go. Uh, there's none of this apprentice style. If you think about Sir Alan Sugar, you know, it started this week. You've got 16 people who all think they're wonderful, and they have got it what it takes to be the one who Alan Sugar is going to invest in. And then over a series of challenges, he whittles them down. Uh, we don't have that with Jesus. He doesn't take his 72 and says, right, folks, o- over the next six weeks, I'm going to give you some tests. And then when we get you down to number the first one person who's, who I reckon can go and cure the sick, that person will be commissioned. He doesn't do that. He says to 72, off you go. Uh, off you go, pray for the sick, pray for the good news, and then they come back and talk about it and reflect on what's happened. And that's the experience that Jesus offers When we think about following Jesus, we can find ourselves thinking straight away to those three years where in his ministry, where he's he's, uh, acting, where he's praying, where he's healing, and so on. Uh, As if it was only when he came back from the temptations in the desert that he suddenly had this download of scripture and this download of how to pray and how to pray for people, and so on. And sometimes we forget that Jesus would have had 30 years uh, training Uh, in the run-up to that. Uh, So what he knows about prayer, what he knows about scripture, because he was a Jew, it would have been from the foundations in his family. Uh, It would have been foundational of going uh, going to the synagogue, of reciting regular prayers on a daily basis. Uh, He would have learnt scripture. He would have gone to the synagogue. And I want to be like that Jesus, just as much as I want to be like the Jesus that I see written up in the Gospels. Um, 
But having said that, so you've got these foundational practices that Jesus had. But when he began his ministry, he took those established practices and he transformed them. Uh, He reworked them and he says to his friends, look, here's a completely new way of experiencing these things. He doesn't ignore the foundations, but he assumes them. So I'd like to look at, if I may, four examples, very briefly, four examples of things that Jesus did and said that might help us in our own devotional life, in our own disciplined life, taking this foundational knowledge and and transforming it. So first of all, uh, Jesus um, would have been familiar with books like Isaiah. He would have uh, known about Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, which says this, right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go. So we'd be familiar with that. But when he says to his friends in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. His disciples are going to think, hang on a minute. That sounds familiar, but it's changed. The voice, this this maybe slightly impersonal um, feature, has been redefined as Jesus. The way is not just a path. It's about truth, and it's about life as well. It's transformational. And so much so that later in the New Testament, we read about the early church being followers of the way in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, for example. So I'm hoping this morning, as we go through this, to offer you some takeaways, uh, uh, to maybe go away this week and try something new, try something transformational, try something different. And so the first takeaway is this. When Jesus offers to teach us, one of the things to do is to ask him to reveal himself through familiar passages where we may not have seen him before, or to spend time in some unfamiliar books and ask the Spirit to reveal Jesus because Jesus will be revealed throughout Scripture. From the beginning to the end, we will find Jesus. And our prayer is, as we read Scripture, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to me. So that may be something you want to have a way, go away and have a go at doing. Secondly, the greatest commandment, um, the foundational principle here is when uh, Jesus is asked to identify the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So far, so good. Uh, the, the self-respecting Jew would think, well, of course, that's obvious. They would have learned this prayer from Deuteronomy, as we know it, in six, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. As soon as they could speak, it's called the Shema, it's part of the Shema. They would recite it twice a day. It would be within their heart. It's as close to a moment as you can get because it was so well known. Richard spoke last week about second nature, muscle memory responses are so important. It would have been like that. What's the greatest commandment? Well, obvious, love the Lord your God. Have a relationship with God. Make sure you are worshipping God. But then, Jesus adds, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, oh, hang on. What? Uh, that, that's not in the Shema. That Jesus has done something different here. What's he done? He's gone into what we know as Leviticus 19, verse 18, and he's added it to the greatest commandment. What a scandal. He's taken the vertical love of God and added something equally important to it and said you've also got to love each other. So we've got the vertical relationship and we've got the horizontal relationship. And I love what Jesus does there. I love the way he takes two different parts of scripture and combines them to produce a transformational reworking. I was having a chat with Rob, uh, Robert Spain yesterday and we were just thinking about it and, and, and I didn't prep him or anything like that but he was talking to me about some passages of scripture. He said, well, I was reading this and it reminded me of this and then I put the two together and it really encouraged me. 
That's exactly the kind of spirit-led reflection on Scripture that I think Jesus wants us to think. Not just take one passage, but say, how does that link with other passages? How can that transform and enhance the way that I'm thinking? When Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, work out your salvation, N.T. Wright suggests this literally means we need to work it out. We need to use our brains. We need to apply the Scripture to everyday life. I don't know about you, I've not found that many examples in the Bible that talk about computing. Um, well, there is one, there is one, where, um, where, where God promises Abraham to provide the ram. <laughs> but most of the time, you have, to work, you, have to, you have to work it out. Those of you who are on the podcast, you can rewind that bit and listen to it again if you didn't get it. <laughs> Um, I have to work stuff out from what I read elsewhere. So takeaway number two. Jesus is showing us the whole of Scripture is there to help us work out what it means to love God vertically and to follow Jesus. Uh, Memorizing Scripture is a fantastic way of doing that, and we should do that. Um, But it's foundational, and we need to build upon it. And we ask God to make those dynamic connections between different passages and books that we can apply to our lives. Thirdly, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Um, foundational prayer. Listen, look at this. Listen to this. Does this remind you of anything? Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world. Does that sound familiar? Why? It's not, well, it, it's the Lord's, it's, it's got things in common with the Lord's Prayer, hasn't it? It's the first line of the Kaddish, which is a foundational Jewish prayer. It's in a, it has a number of different forms, but the first line is always, is always that, exalted and hallowed be his great name uh, in the world. And so when people say, when the friends of Jesus come to him and say, will you teach us to pray? Jesus doesn't, take, uh, doesn't stand there and think, oh, right, I better come up with a prayer that I can pass on for the future generations. He starts with the prayer that he would have recited and known on a regular basis. He takes that and then what does he do? He transforms it. He transforms it. And he adds our Father. He adds intimacy. He adds relationship into the prayer. Just like the voice becomes Jesus, the way. Um, uh, and he adds at the end of it, he adds a whole section that isn't originally there. He adds a whole section about everyday life, about daily bread, about forgiving others, about vertical and horizontal relationships. And Jesus is encouraging his disciples to work out what this new kingdom looks like. Love, yes, says, love God, of course. Don't, don't forget the, praise that you've, the prayers that you've been praying since your childhood. It's not nullifying those. It's not getting rid of those. They're important. Pray the first part of the prayer, and you will be loving God vertically. That's fantastic. But if you want to love others horizontally, you're going to have to change the way you pray, and you're going to have to pray the second part as well. So God's saying to us, Jesus is saying to his friends, love God, love others. And take away number three. Uh, as we learn from Jesus' model of prayer, and we think about our own praying, uh, we know that Jesus spent alone, time alone, and he spent time with others. We know that he worshipped God, and we know that he prayed for and with others. So there's the challenge for me. In my praying, do I demonstrate um, a horizontal and vertical relationships within my praying? And do I pray on my own? And do I pray with others? Because I think as Aaron's been reminding us, that, and we've seen this morning, you know, Jesus is revealed more when we're with other people. And you know, it's a greater revelation of Jesus. I came across a challenging thought, and I, I certainly don't offer this to you as someone who's got this right. 
but I found it challenging. I was looking through the, uh, the Spring Harvest book on prayer, uh, the theme for this year, and, and I've added a little bit to it myself. He says this, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, Paul calls us to pray continually. This is hard. Does it not often feel less like pray continually and more like check our phones continually? Is our delight in the word overtaken by a need for a tweet? Are we sacrificing meeting with believers to spend time with invisible friends online? It's a challenge to us as to God calling us to community, calling to horizontal relationships as much as vertical relationships. Are we okay? I'm conscious I'm going quite fast, but I want to bring us to the central part of what I want to say and what our faith is. It's Jesus. It's the Last Supper, and we have before us a table. Um, The foundational practice is that Jesus is fully aware of the Passover rituals. He would have been, he would have remembered the, the, the meal that he would have had with his family on many, many occasions, remembering the Exodus, remembering the importance of sacrifice. Um, families would share that meal regularly with one another. Uh, they would follow a clear ritual where they would rehearse and remember the events that led to leading their people out of Israel. It was a powerful corporate act which builds strong community rooted in thanksgiving for God's saving power. That would have been the Passover meal. And Jesus comes and he transforms it. And it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Luke 22, verse 15. He says this, I have been very eager to eat this Passover with you before my suffering begins. He takes the Passover meal, he reinvents it. He's not sitting with his birth family. He's sitting with his friends. He's sitting with friends who have doubted him failed him, misunderstood him, and some of whom will go on to deny him and betray him. And he says, I really want to eat this meal with you. He says that to you this morning. In different accounts of the Last Supper, Jesus refers to scripture being fulfilled. He prays, talks about a new agreement between God and people. Uh, Great news that would be. He redefines what that would be. They sing a hymn. It's a meal with friends. They hear scripture, they pray, they sing, they hear good news about Jesus. Sounds like church to me. Sounds like church. It reminds me of Acts 2, 42, that, I, uh, that when I was leading a few weeks ago that we focused on, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, in sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Jesus wants to be with his friends. And he wants his friends to be together. There is no mandate for the Jesus model that I can find of prayer or application of scripture that says we should do church on our own. The author of Hebrews tells the church not to neglect meeting together, but to encourage one another. Church, and it may be people here, it may be people listening to this, church may have hurt you, for which I'm sorry. You may find it uninspiring. You may not like the music. But what I see here in front of me immediately before a time of immense suffering instigated by the established church at the time is Jesus modeling being together. At the center of the meal is an invitation to do this and remember me. It's an experience. One of the world's greatest ballerinas performed in New York. Her two-hour dance was profound. It was, mag- it was magical. It was moving. And at the end of the dance, she held a short press conference. 
And one over-enthusiastic journalist popped up and said, that was amazing, that dance, it was so good. But would you mind just explaining in a short sentence what it actually meant? And the ballerina looked at them and said, short and simply, if I could have said it, I wouldn't have needed to have danced it. If I said it, I wouldn't need to have danced it. Jesus did not come to explain the gospel all the good news of Jesus, of God's love. He didn't come to foot, foot forward academic arguments uh, for, to, of justification. He didn't come to browbeat his opponents. He came to show us. He came to, ex, for, to experience and to go through the suffering and the death of the cross and to be raised to life again at the other side so that we might have a relationship with God, so that we may be called friends of God. He came to demonstrate, show, and embody the love of God. Just want to read a couple of verses. If I could ask the band maybe just to come back uh, to play quietly as we move towards the time of communion. I'd just like to read a couple of, uh, couple of sentences. Um, on Friday, uh, we were visiting Liz's parents, and um, we, were, uh, we were there, and, um, and Liz's mum... Uh, gave us a Bible, she said, I've just been sorting out some stuff, and then she gave us a Bible uh, that they'd been keeping back for us, and it belonged to uh, Lizzie's great-grandmother, so it's probably about 100 years old, something like that. Um, and inside this King James Bible uh, were various bits of paper in, uh, in this lady's handwriting. There were verses that had been copied out of Gideon's Bibles over the ages, you know, the kind of things that you can find in Gideon's Bibles, like what to do when you're in trouble, what to do, what to pray when you're uh, angry, what to do, what to do. And they'd all been written out painstakingly by hand because I guess 100 years ago didn't have a computer <laughs> to Google it. <laughs> um, and there was one piece of writing that had been written out. There was one passage that really caught our attention and I shared it at the prayer breakfast yesterday. Um, and we didn't know. We didn't know whether she'd written it. We didn't know whether it was something that she'd found. Uh, we've done a bit of research, uh, good old Google, um, and, and it, is, it, is, it is out there. I'm not going to play it t- today. But it's a, it's a piece of writing about the Bible. And a hundred or so years ago, this lady copied it out and she kept it in her Bible and she passed it on to her, uh, her family and it's been passed on to us. This was a lady who had discipline. This was a lady who had a high regard for prayer and the scripture. And she talks about the Bible like this. The Bible reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, and the happiness, the doom of the ungodly and the happiness of believers. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, armor to protect you, food to sustain you, and comfort to cheer you. Here paradise is restored, heaven is opened, the gates of hell disclosed. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Come to it with awe, read it with reverence, frequently, slowly, prayerfully. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its design, redemption its plan, and the glory of God its end. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. It is a mine of wealth, a storehouse of food, a paradise of glory, a rose of rare fragrance, a river of joy, a life-giving fountain, a wheel with 66 spokes, each leading to Christ, its center and hub. I've given you a number of takeaways today. But it seems to me one can only live so long on takeaways. 
Sometimes you need to eat in. The table here is an invitation to each one of us. And what better way to respond corporately as a community than to share in communion together this morning. It's a sign, a shared experience. It's a commitment to a way of life. By coming forward, you're not saying you're perfect, but you are saying you're forgiven. You are not coming forward as a sinner. You're coming forward as a saint. You are not coming forward, as Richard was saying last week, you're not coming forward ruled by the darkness. You have grace as a new master. Following Jesus is the most exciting, dynamic, transformational relationship we can ever have. And it has the power to transform our vertical, this table has the power to transform our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with others. It's a meal that contains within it the ancient echoes of the Exodus, the truths and practices and the disciplines that shaped Jesus' childhood, but then completely transforms the way we relate to God, to one another. So I would invite if the servers could come uh, forward to help us take communion this morning. If you're not familiar with how we do it here, there'll be two sets of servers, some at the front for these front rows and some in the middle for those of you in the, the rows further back. And the stewards will come and invite you to come and come forward. I will pray. Uh, the music will play. It may be that you're here and you've taken communion hundreds of times. Come in the communion, in the community of the church. It may be that you've come today and you've never had that opportunity to offer your life to Jesus. And you're wondering whether you should get up out of your seat and come forward. The invitation to you today is to do just that is to come receive the forgiveness, the love of God. So I will pray, the music will play, we will sing. And while we do that, it seems to me we have about 10 minutes or so. If you want to pray with the person next to you, if you want to sit and read some scripture with them or for yourself, you want to share something that you feel that you want to pray for, that's what church is. That's what we do here. So please take that opportunity to have those, those horizontal relationships. Let's pray together. Father, I really ask that the words that I've spoken this morning will be distilled in our hearts for one simple word, Jesus. We look to Jesus as our model for prayer. We look to Jesus for our model of how to read scripture. And we look to Jesus as our model for what it means to be church. And the invitation to come and remember you this morning as you died on the cross, as you were raised to life again, to secure friendship with you. We thank you for that. And if there's anyone here this morning for whom this is a new decision, it's very simple. In your heart, we just say, Lord, I recognize that you are good. I recognize that I've messed up. And I recognize that by coming and taking this bread and this wine, I can experience not just forgiveness today, but forgiveness for all time. And I recognize that the gates of heaven are open to me and that the promise of eternal life, life in the here and now and in the future is secure. I want to trust you with my life. I want to be known as a saint, not a sinner. I want to have grace as my new master. And if you're able to pray that prayer in your heart, please come take communion this morning.